0: Good afternoon, this is is the Dogs Programme. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday, 12 noon, without fail, to promote and defend public education. And that's education, of course, that is public in every sense of the word. It's not only public in access, it's also public in ownership and control and outcome. It should be public in ownership, of course and it should also be publicly accountable. Private schools are none of that. Private education is really education which cannot be controlled and which just eats up billions now of dollars of public money. Now, this week we're talking about teacher education because something really quite startling has happened. Jason Clare set up a group to look at the problem with teachers and instead of actually looking at all of the problems that are confronting teachers and why they are walking away from our schools, instead of that he decided that he'd politicise teacher education and um, it's really quite a sad thing. They haven't done their history of course. The dogs consider that the teachers are in trouble because back in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of romancing about decentralisation. But the more the state governments decentralised, the more the supports for our teachers in the state bureaucracies were run down, the more principals were expected to be managers of schools rather than educators in schools, the more administrative jobs were imposed upon our teachers, Uh, together with NAPLAN and other things, and accountability even, the more that has happened, education has centralised in Canberra. And there are a number of uh, institutions, if you like, bureaucracies that have been set up in Canberra since 2008, although they were well on the way before the Rudd-Gillard government. And they're still there. And one of them is AITSL, which deals with teacher education. But without any more ado, let's go to Press Release 989, which you can find on our website at www.adogs.info, where the dogs are discussing the politicisation of teacher education. Over to Andy and Dale.
1: Thanks, Jean. This is Press Release 989, The Politicisation of Teacher Education, on July 7th, in the Sydney Morning Herald, Deborah Hayes, the Professor of Education and Equity and Head of School at the University of Sydney's School of Education and Social Work, wrote an article for the Sydney Morning Herald entitled, Political Incursion into Teaching the Teachers is a Hard Lesson. She was very critical of the Teacher Education Expert Panel Report, chaired by University of Sydney Vice-Chancellor Mark Scott. She believed that the institution of radical changes to initial teacher education was a perplexing place for governments to start addressing the twin crises of teacher workload and teacher shortage. She wrote, What we will deliver this week contains misrepresentation and an absurd overreach, a plan for the nation's education ministers to mandate the content of initial teachers' education programs. I only wish that any of our ministers in the states or territories could understand what it is that new teachers need and why single out teacher education? Will there be a politically appointed panel sometime soon to tell us about what should be in medical or engineering degrees? This report is a politicization of higher education. While the panel is strong on what teacher educators at universities should do, it almost completely avoids the responsibility of governments and systems of education to improve the quality of the experience of graduates. The conditions of teachers must be addressed by reducing the relentless intensification of their work and by improving their pay. These are issues that education ministers can do something about. what few teachers, parents, principals, and even those involved in teacher training understand is that since the Carmel Report in 1973, when the Commonwealth became substantially involved in the funding of both public and private education, administration of schools has become centralised in Canberra. This has been done despite education being a state matter under Section 51 of the Constitution, it has been engineered through specific purpose grants under Section 96 of the Constitution, firstly through state aid to the private sector and then, after the Carmel Report in 1973, by grants to the public sector. At the same time, the support and career structures for teachers and principals built up in state administrations over the last 200 years have been eroded, if not completely demolished, through demands for decentralisation at the state level. The loss of these structures together with favoured funding of private schools has led to the current teacher crisis. Dogs believe that this, in part, is the reason behind the current teacher crisis in Australian public schools. The centralisation in Canberra slash decentralisation in state administration development gained further momentum under the 1990s Howard government in Canberra and the Kennett government in Victoria. It reached its current structure under the Rudd-Gillard government in 2008. In December 2008, a new act established the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority, ACARA, The authority was jointly owned, managed and funded by all nine Australian governments with 50% federal funding. Its responsibilities included curriculum development, administration of NAPLAN and national data and reporting. The national report on schools in Australia and the MySchool website have in the last decade provided data on every school in Australia. This data includes the Index of Community Socio-Educational Advantage, IXIA, the recurrent and capital funding, NAPLAN assessment results, and curriculum details for every Australian school. These are publicly available on the internet and have been well-mined by education researchers exposing continuing inequities in Australian education. Now I'll pass over to Andy.
2: Thanks, Dale. Teach Equality. The next addition to the national structure was establishment of the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership, AITSL, in January, 2010. This federal organisation was not jointly owned by federal and state governments like ACARA, but was established as a public company owned exclusively by the federal government with the federal government for education allocated power to directly appoint members to the governing board. Nevertheless, state and territory ministers endorsed the establishment of the Australian Professional Standards for Teachers, APST, in 2011, along with the Australian Professional Standard for Principals. This structure now gives the current Minister, Jason Clare, the power to determine what teachers are taught in our universities. Education Resources. The establishment of Education Services Australia, ESA, in 2010, completed the new national centralised structure, ESA was to establish resources to support national reform rather than develop core policies. However, it was a crucial underpinning of new national policies and supporting policies that relied upon data collection and technological change. There have been two Gonski reports in the last decade attempting to tackle the perennial issues of public and private funding, together with growing levels of disadvantage in Australia. And the state aid issue, which the Carmel Report and Schools Commission were said to have buried, continued to haunt Australian education. There are still a lot of restless natives making a noise in our Australian educational scene about inequalities, and now we have a teacher crisis. The curriculum, external testing, certification of teachers and principals and payment for these, as well as the partial payment of private school teachers and school infrastructure is now largely in the hands of the national government. The state governments, individual schools and private sector administrations may employ and pay teachers, but conditions of employment are the subject of discrimination acts, and funding for teacher remuneration, especially for the private sector, are also the gift of the National Treasury. There is now considerable unrest among teachers at the uniformity in curriculum assessment, teacher certification or data collection. Yet, the structures initiated by the Rudd-Gillard government remain in place. Although the private sector, and most particularly the Catholic education sector, refused in the 19th century to tolerate state control, there is little concern that they have lost any apparent authority over core educational content in their schools. The decentralisation debate appears to have disappeared as all parties in the education community relate their demands to the federal government, which, after all, holds the largest purse strings. Given the new kinds of intergovernmental horizontal relationships developed in the past decades, in bodies like ACARA, with the blurring of roles and responsibilities, the centralisation-decentralisation debate has become irrelevant. The Australian constitution drafted in the 1890s left the education of domestic governance responsibilities to the states, including education. The colonial delegates were quite clear about their desire a decentralized union where the states would retain the bulk of the extensive powers and responsibilities they had exercised as self-governing colonies. Education is not one of the powers of the Commonwealth listed in Section 51 of the Constitution, yet the federal government in 2022 appears to be the major decision maker in matters of funding, policy, curriculum, teacher training and evaluation, infrastructure and collection of data in Australian schools. And now, instead of addressing the real issues confronting teachers in our schools, the lack of adequate state or regional administration, adequate funding, proper and secure salary, relief from administrative tasks, security of tenure, curriculum support structures and career opportunities, the Canberra administration has taken the opportunity to politicise teacher education in the university sector. Thanks and back to you Jean.
0: Well thank you Dale and Andy uh, for enlightening us on what is really happening in Canberra, but uh, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to look at the actual article which our press release quoted
3: from. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the constitution for that, you know. That's why Free CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice.
4: Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3CR.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. You're
0: still listening to the Dogs Programme, I hope, because we've now got Sol who's going to read us the article which uh, we quoted from in our press release, 989. Over to you, Sol.
4: Thanks, Jean. So today I have an article written by Deborah Hayes, who is a Professor of Education and Equity and Head of School at the University of Sydney's School of Education and Social Work. The article is entitled, Political Incursion into Teaching the Teachers is a Hard Lesson. There's a crisis in Australian education, but there is no solution to be found in the Teacher Education Expert Panel's report, chaired by University of Sydney Vice-Chancellor Mark Scott. In August last year, Federal Education Minister Jason Clare presided over a roundtable on Australia's teacher workforce crisis, where he emerged then for a press conference. He recounted stories that almost brought him to tears of teachers working 60 and 70 hour weeks, tales of unsustainable workloads brought out by a system in crisis. We are a long way away from those tears now. His response, the panel's response, released on Thursday and embraced by the nation's state education ministers, is to institute radical changes to initial teacher education, ITE, meaning the way our universities teach future school teachers to teach our children. It is a perplexing place for governments to start addressing the twin crises of teacher workload and teacher shortage. What we were delivered this week contains misrepresentation and an absurd overreach. A plan for the nation's education ministers to mandate the content of initial teacher education programs. I only wish that any of our ministers in the states or territories could understand what it is that new teachers need. And why single out teacher education? Will there be a politically appointed panel sometime soon to tell us about what should be in medical or engineering degrees? This report is politicisation of higher education. While the panel is strong on what teacher educators at universities should do, it almost completely avoids the responsibility of governments and systems of education to improve the quality of the experience of graduates the conditions of teachers must be addressed by reducing the relentless intensification of their work and by improving their pay. These are issues that the education ministers can do something about. The report claims new teachers are underprepared to teach in several key areas. Many of its recommendations rest upon this assumption, which would be concerning if it were true, but the evidence used to support this claim has not been accurately cited. It misrepresents what the four-year Australian research project Studying the Effectiveness of Teacher Education shows. It surveyed more than 5,000 graduate teachers and 1,000 principals. Significantly, graduate teacher respondents felt prepared by existing teacher education programs and effective as beginning teachers in all nine reported areas of teachers' work. However, they said they were better prepared in some areas than others. And here's where the real focus should be. How do we make sure when teachers start to teach that they are equally prepared across all areas? The report talks about mentoring, and that's definitely an area which needs more support. And once you address pay and conditions, more senior teachers will be available to do that mentoring. The panel's report mandates four core areas for initial teacher education, the brain and learning, effective pedagogical practices, including how to teach numeracy and literacy, classroom management, and responsive teaching. Is there a teacher education program in the country that does not already have these in its core curriculum? Of course not. This report manufactures a crisis about the quality of initial teacher education, even though the integration of the initial teacher education sector into universities since the 1980s has resulted in powerhouses of cutting-edge research and research-informed teaching. One of our great failures as a nation is undervaluing teachers, and this extends to teacher educators. Can we please stop bagging them? Let's consider one of the proposed core content areas, the brain and learning. This section of the report draws upon concepts developed in cognitive science and educational psychology, such as cognitive load and working memory. Even though these fields say very little about the neural mechanisms and the biological functioning of the human brain, there is a real danger that brain science is seen as a silver bullet to better learning when we need teachers who are well-equipped to build relationships with students, motivate them, design engaging learning experiences, and make good decisions in the face of enormous complexity. Brain science is only one piece of the puzzle, and teaching ITE students to rely too heavily on it is perilous. Putting aside the jargon, the proposal to include core content about how the brain learns should alarm parents who want their children to engage in learning that develops them as a whole person without the potential of placing limits on them according to assumptions about the capacity and functioning of their brain. Let me introduce you to my sister who has an intellectual disability. She has been held back throughout her life by limited assumptions of what she can understand. I'm often asked, what's her mental age? Her empathy, capacity for kindness, and savant memory for names and people count for little. The panel claims the link between performance and funding of initial teacher education will be strengthened by publicly reporting on a range of indicators. This is a new type of league table. Haven't we seen over and over again in education that league tables have unintended consequences and worsen the outcomes they are trying to improve? Let me remind you that NAPLAN, the most embedded of all our league tables, has done nothing to improve literacy and numeracy outcomes. The NAPLAN results have continued a downward trend since the introduction of this testing and reporting in 2008. The report's most promising yet disappointing section relates to improving the quality of professional experience. The suggestion for system-wide coordination of practical experience for student teachers in classrooms has real merit, but where is the funding coming from and where will it be directed? The panel's recommendations that student teachers be prepared to understand what works best is futile and severely underestimates the nature of teachers' work. Teachers must constantly pivot from one approach to another in response to student needs, contexts, and available resources. They need to be equipped to interpret the evidence in front of them and respond accordingly. Transplanting practices shown to work elsewhere is not the solution. An assessment by expert professor Dylan William is wont to say in education, Everything works somewhere and nothing works everywhere. We need teachers with the kind of professional judgment to know what's going to work for this group of students right here, right now, and to have the knowledge and skills to make that happen. There's nothing in the support that prioritises this. Like other leaders in initial teacher education, I want to work with ministers on important nation-building projects. Let's start by agreeing on a vision that's something the report has failed to attempt to define. The panel provides some answers for ministers attempting to respond to the teacher workforce crisis. But we cannot have the confidence to trust its findings or recommendations because it includes misrepresentations of entire fields of knowledge and key research findings. We have had dozens and dozens of reviews of our profession most of which have fallen short of the promise of building the future of our nation. This report will do the same. That is some very interesting words there by Deborah Hayes about this new report. Back over to you, Jean.
0: Well, uh, thank you very much, Sorrell. That was a very interesting article indeed uh, and uh, written by somebody who's got a few uh, clues about what's really going on. And uh, the dogs have been around for about 50 years, so we've got a few clues about it too and understand where she's coming from. But we'll have a bit of a break and then we'll come back to talk about private and public school funding.
5: I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphon. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Papua.
2: Tuesday, six thirty until seven thirty
3: PM.
0: News and music from West Papua. You're still listening to the dogs program and uh, we've got a very interesting article on uh, private school funding, which has increased twice as much as public schools in the decade after Donsky. Uh, I'm informed uh, by those who really are in the know that this has been really trending on social media and people have been commenting But of course, the dogs have known about this and have been telling you about this on 3CR for the last decade. But Maddie is going to fill us in on this one. Over to you, Maddie.
6: Thank you, Jean. This article is called Private School Funding Increased Twice as Much as Public Schools in Decade After Gonski, data shows, and it is by Jordan Beasley and Caitlin Cassidy. Real government funding to private schools has increased almost twice as much as funding to public schools in the decade since the landmark Gonski Review recommended changes designed to fund Australian schools according to need. From 2012 to 2021, per-student funding to independent and Catholic schools rose by 34% and 31% respectively, while funding to public schools increased by just 17%, according to parliamentary library data provided exclusively to Guardian Australia. In Queensland, the growth in government funding to independent schools per student has been nine times greater than to public schools. The Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority, ACARA, data shows that 98% of private schools are funded above the Schooling Resource Standard, or SRS, recommended by Gonski, and more than 98% of public schools are funded below it. That money has gone to the wrong place, said Trevor Kobold, an economist and the National Convener of Save Our Schools. It has gone to those least in need. The Gonski review was hailed as a roadmap to reducing the impact of social disadvantage on educational outcomes. But more than a decade later, government policy has had the opposite effect. Cobalt says the figures showed a sabotaging of the plan by successive governments, both state and federal, which has sought shortchanged students in the public system. The Gonski model wasn't perfect. There were some flaws, he said but it offered a change in terms of where funding would be directed in terms of the most in need, and that has not happened. The Greens education spokesperson, Penny Allman-Payne, said the gap in funding between private and public schools had created one of the most unequal and segregated school school systems in the OECD. A UNICEF report in 2018 ranked Australia 30th out of 38 OECD countries in providing equitable access to secondary education. It's clear that the implementation of Gonski has been a failure. By no measure can anyone say, a decade later, that our school funding model is working, she said. It's a twisted and perverse system that is widening the gap between rich and poor kids and lowering average student performance. One of the core recommendations of the Gonski Review, when it was released in 2011, was implementing the SRS, a needs-based model to provide a baseline education to students set at $13,060 for primary students and $16,413 for secondary students. The Federal Education Minister at the time of the Gonski Review, Peter Garrett, said the aim was to ensure any student, irrespective of their background, could reach their potential. The legislation we put in place meant Australia finally had a genuine needs-based funding system for the first time, he said. This required a massive effort to produce significant buy-in from most of the education sector Australia-wide. But a briefing by the Education Department prepared for witnesses appear- appearing before Senate, estimates, and seen by Guardian Australia, estimates that school In the Australian Capital Territory, South Australia and Western Australia will reach only 75% of their SRS this year, with the remaining states and territories also falling short of 100%. On its current trajectory, the Northern Territory will never reach it. Cobold said the failure to fund schools according to need could be traced back to key decisions made by successive governments after the Gonski review. The first kick to its success, he said, was the Gillard's government edict that no school would lose a dollar. A deal was struck with the Catholic system and other private schools which were found to be overfunded at the time to maintain their revenue from government.
0: Well, thank you, Maddie, for reminding us what's really behind a lot of the problems behind the so-called crisis in education. It started back in the 1960s when our politicians thought that they could buy off the Catholic vote and a few other votes as well, Uh, and the state aid experiment has led to the current crisis and it was all predictable. But we'll have a bit of a break and come back to the other problem that's confronting education, the new right.
1: Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope, only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au.
0: Well, you're still listening to the dogs program and um, the dogs aren't the only one that have been saying that something went terribly wrong in the 1980s. Actually, it was under the Labor government and is it terrible how it's the Labor government these days that introduces the rather nasty uh, policies. But how um, competition is ruining Australia's school system, the catch cry of the neoliberals competition competition and private is good and public is bad over to you andy
2: thanks jean how competition is ruining australia's school system there are two big competitions happening in australia's school system one is for students and the other is for public funding with the help of successive governments non-public schools are winning both competitions while australia's school system embeds inequality in the nation Inequality is important to non-public schools. Ironically, non-public schools need inequality in Australia's school system. Without inequality, they and their associated entities, mainly churches, would struggle to survive. It is no coincidence that non-public schools have thrived as inequality has increased. Competition for the right students. Non-public schools compete with other schools for students preferably capable and well-behaved students from more affluent families. Ideally, the families are in good social standing, well-educated, well-connected and actively engaged with their children's learning. The net result is that both the students and their families add value to the school and are a cost saving because the students need less special provision. The families also provide material resources to the school in terms of tuition and other fees and on costs for materials, equipment and experiences. In turn, this enables the school to offer more and so become more competitive. It also enables them to be more selective, a key factor in their marketing strategies. To attract such families, schools must continue to offer more while moderating the additional costs to families. Attracting more affluent and committed families means that additional costs do not have to be moderated to the same extent Public schools are severely constrained from competing for students. Competition for public funding. Competition drives up costs for families, governments and schools. Marketing for many schools can be a high cost activity involving staff and the use of a wide range of media. Fees and on-costs continue to increase as non-public schools offer more. It makes sense that non-public schools compete strongly for public funds to offset the cost of their additional offerings while moderating the cost to families. As a result, they can fund extension programs and extracurricular activities and experiences beyond what parents are prepared to fund directly. In this context, there is no upper limit to the level of acceptable public funding for non-public schools. Remember JobKeeper? 870 million dollars for non-public schools. Most of the schools did not meet the JobKeeper criteria. Inequitable public funding. Governments must manage their budgets. Non-public schools have a powerful, well-resourced voice to state and federal governments. Public schools lack an equivalent. Most non-public schools are overfunded by government's own measures, while public schools are underfunded and will remain so for the foreseeable future. As a result of the non-public sector's success in competing for public funding, many non-public schools now receive more public funding and have far better facilities than similar public schools. Competition undermines the school system. Australia's school system should educate all Australian children so that they are able to enjoy ongoing success and well-being, but it frequently fails already disadvantaged students. Competition drives up costs for all stakeholders without improving the performance of Australia's school system. Competition concentrates students into different schools on the basis of their socio-educational advantage through costs to families and selective enrolments. And there is a clear correlation between socio-educational advantage and learning outcomes. High needs, high cost, disadvantaged students are relegated to attend underfunded public schools, especially where state and territory governments apply zoning policies. In extreme cases, the most disadvantaged public schools serving the most disadvantaged communities become residualised and may be closed. It is the system. Australia's school system enables and encourages non-public schools to compete for students from public and non-public schools. And many have been very successful. Public schools provide the basic stock as families aspire to greater things for themselves and their families. Sadly, this often means undervaluing what public schools offer and restricting their capacity to respond properly to the needs of their students in many instances. All while governments tamper with public schools in the hope of improving school performance and the performance of Australia's school system. School performance is not a big issue for most non-public schools. They get a head start by choosing the right students from the right families. And so inequality in Australia's school system continues to increase. The long-term implications for the nation are quite serious. Inequality in a nation's school system drives long-term inequality in the nation. Another way, one school system. At this point in time, there are few proposals for addressing the above. And it is very likely that the non-public school sector will fiercely oppose any proposals that are taken seriously by governments. Australia's school system is currently two systems, one public and the other non-public, with very different rules for each. A singular school system would need a common framework for all Australian schools. Bonner and Greenwell have such a proposal for consideration. Importantly, it suggests stages and priorities to be addressed in its possible implementation. It is radical and challenging, but it is a common framework that relates to similar arrangements in other countries. Hopefully, Australia has not gone too far in its current direction. And this proposal has been released in a report named Choice and Fairness, a Common Framework for All Australian Schools. Back to you, Jean.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much, Andy, on enlightening us on the neoliberal uh, ideology of competition and the effect it's having on our education system. But now we're going overseas with our roaming expert, Jeff. We're off to uh, look at uh, what's happening overseas in America and uh, what uh, people did with their pandemic uh, dollars and then to the UK where something very interesting has happened, very interesting about tax exemptions. And given that Australia usually follows England, perhaps that's what uh, might happen here because a lot of people are talking about the real iceberg, the direct grants that we talk about the billions of dollars that the private schools get. They, uh, we can work out what that is. But there's another figure, the iceberg under the surface, the taxation exemptions that uh, really amount to even more billions. But uh, let's go overseas with Jeff.
5: Thanks, Jean. And we, as usual, we're going to the Diana Ravitch blog from the United States. Um, this one, this article is dated the 16th of July by Diana Ravitch. And it regards the, the private sector sticking its snouts in the trough of the public purse, as usual. But in particular, a story from Oklahoma, where $39 million in federal pandemic funds tilted towards private schools, not the neediest, is the title of the article. And she goes on. 2 nonprofit news organisations in Oklahoma, the Frontier and Oklahoma Watch, teamed up to discover a misuse of federal funding by special interest groups, groups. One such group was Betsy DeVos's American Federation for Children. The state received $39 million to aid students during the pandemic. Millions in federal relief money meant to help Oklahoma students during the pandemic was misspent at the hand of special interest groups who gave preferential treatment to private schoolers while hundreds of needy children missed out on financial aid, a state audit has found. The Stay in School program provided tuition assistance, up to $6,500 for private school students whose families were financially affected by the pandemic. An audit released Tuesday also confirmed flaws in how the state handled the Bridge the Gap Digital Wallet Pandemic Relief Program, a joint investigation by the Frontier and Oklahoma Watch. Last year revealed how families spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in Bridge the Gap money on video game consoles, Christmas trees and grills, being barbecues. Both programs were funded through the Governor's Emergency Education Relief Fund, a pot of flexible federal money intended to give governors the power to fund educational programs during the pandemic. Before he was elected state superintendent last year, Ryan Walters oversaw the implementation of pandemic programs funded with federal relief money while he was the executive director director of a pro-school reform non-profit, Every Kid Counts Oklahoma and after Stitt appointed him Secretary of Education in September 2020, state auditors were unable to find any contract authorising Every Kid Counts Oklahoma to oversee the programs. Email records obtained by Oklahoma Watch and The Frontier show Walters issued a blanket approval for purchases of all vendor items available on the class wallet platform after the company gave him a chance to restrict which items could be purchased. State Auditor and Inspector Cindy Byrd's audit found $1.8 million in questioned costs, costs for the Bridge to Gap program and a $6.5 million for the stay-in-school program. The report found programs were overseen by individuals and private organisations who, who were unqualified, didn't have contracts with the state authorising them to perform the work and were granted access to confidential student records. The audit found that almost 20% of purchases through the Bridge the Gap program were spent on non-educational items against grant guidelines. According to Byrd's report, administrators of the Stay in School program were involved in a deliberate operation to give selected private schools and individuals preferential treatment by allowing early access for application submission prior to the date this program was offered to the general public. Jennifer Carter, a prominent school choice advocate and president of Libertas Consulting, LLC, was named as an administrator for the Stay in School program, administrator without entering into a contract with the state, the audit found. Carter is a senior advisor for former US Education Secretary Betsy DeVos' education privatisation organisation, Federation for Children, and served as the chief of staff and campaign manager for former state superintendent Janet Barassi, and has been involved in multiple school choice efforts in Oklahoma. Class Wallet also listed Carter as a district administrator. With Carter's direction, five unnamed private schools were given preferential treatment for the stay-in-school program the audit found. Students from the preferred schools were awarded the maximum of $6,500 per student and received enrolment exceptions for for children who had not previously attended the audit found. After funds ran dry, 657 students of low-income families who qualified for the stay-in-school program did not get the financial assistance. More than $5.3 million went to families who said they did not have a pandemic-related financial hardship. The audit also found that private schools received $1.8 million in excess of families' tuition responsibilities. In a statement to The Frontier... Carter said the American Federation for Children did not bill the state for its work on the program. As the nation's leading voice for education freedom, AFC, was happy to offer advice to the state around the implementation of the Governor's Stay in School Fund gear program, Carter said. The Stay in School Fund, which was aimed at minimising students' education disruption during COVID, served almost 1,900 kids with tuition assistance. We gladly provided this service at no expense to taxpayers. The state auditor said this was a tangled web of government agencies, non-profit organisations and non-government individuals representing special interest groups managing millions of tax dollars with no contracts and no written agreements, Bird said. Sadly, millions of dollars, taxpayers' dollars, were misspent because certain individuals who were put in charge of managing these programs seemingly ignored federal grant guidelines. Wasn't it charitable of the American Federation for Children to divert money away from impoverished children to private school students at no cost to the state. Yes, well, that's a typical story, I'm afraid, from the UK... uh, ..from the United States, where DeVos and other private individuals are making money out of taxpayer dollars designed to educate children. Um, Now we're going to nip across to the UK, where, incidentally, the... um, The unions are recommending that teachers accept a 6.5% wage increase offer from the government. Um, But I'm not talking about that today. Um, We're going to go to a report from the Institute of Fiscal Studies, which is a respected uh, financial institution. And they did a a report published on the 11th of July on tax private school fees and state school spending. Now, um, at the moment, they're thinking about uh, removing the the tax-free status of private schools in the UK, uh, and wondering whether this this is a report designed to uh, determine whether or not that's a positive or a negative for the outcomes uh, for education in the UK. So I'm only going to read the executive summary and key findings, because it is a long report, but uh, I'll, I'll read it. Out now, it says, This report compares private school fees and state school spending. It also examines Labor's proposal to remove tax exemptions from private schools. The executive summary says, The Labor Party has proposed a package of policies to remove tax exemptions from private schools. Most importantly, in revenue terms, it has proposed levying VAT on private school fees. The revenue raised would then be used to increase state school spending and would be targeted at pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds. In this report, we analysed the likely effects of these proposals on tax revenues and school spending. And the key findings are, one, in 2223, the average private school fees across the UK were £15,200 in today's prices, net of bursaries and scholarships. This is £7,200, or 90% higher, than state school spending per pupil, which was £8,000 in 22-23, including day-to-day and capital spending. The gap between private school fees and state school spending per pupil has more than doubled since 2010, when the gap was about 40%, or £3,500. Two, if the, sh- the share of pupils across the UK in private schools has remained at about 6-7%. to for at least the last 20 years, or about 560 to 570,000 pupils in England. This has occurred despite a 20% real-terms increase in the average private school fees since 2010 and a 55% rise since 2003. Unsurprisingly, private school attendance is largely concentrated at the very top of the income distribution. There is also evidence to suggest that it is often motivated by wider factors, such as culture and values. Three, we estimate that removing tax exemptions from private school would raise about £1.6 billion a year in extra tax revenue. This results from an effective VAT rise of 15% after allowing for input deductions, likely VAT onboarding of fees and exemptions for specialist provision. It also includes extra revenues from business rates. Four, if demand for private schooling reduces as a result of increases in post-tax fees the additional tax revenue raised would likely be unaffected. This is because any reduced revenue from VAT on private school fees will likely be made up for by higher VAT revenues on other goods and services, holding overall consumer spending constant. If parents decided to stop paying for private school fees as a result of the extra VAT, this would release spending on fees that would likely be spent on other goods and services, thereby generating extra VAT revenues. Five, if private school attendance drops, state schools will require extra funding to accommodate them. The limited evidence on the determinants of the demand for private schooling suggests that the effects of fee rises are quite weak. In the short run, the effect might be extremely small as a few parents might opt to take to children out of, a, out of school partway through primary or secondary school. The effect might be larger over the medium to long run. Our best judgment is that it would be reasonable to assume that an effective VAT rate of 15% would lead to a 3 to 7% reduction in private school attendance. This would likely generate a need for about £100 to £300 million pounds in extra school spending per year in the medium to long run. Six, combining estimated tax revenues and extra public spending needs, our view is that it would be reasonable to assume that a net gain to the public finances of £1.3 to £1.5 billion pounds per year in the medium to long run as a result of removing tax exemptions from private schools, would be the result. This would allow for about 2% increase in state school spending in England, which Labor has proposed would be targeted at disadvantaged students. Seven, there is still a lot of uncertainty around these estimates. We have not accounted for potential reductions to Labor supplies, as, as there is the potential for tax avoidance behaviour on the behalf of parents of schools. The effects are also likely to be heterogeneous given the range of different schools in the private sector. Finally, it is possible that the state school sector could easily accommodate extra pupils, given that the overall pupil numbers across England are due to decline by at least 100,000 per year on average up to 2030, i.e. a total drop of more than 700,000, which is bigger than the total number of children attending private schools. That's all I need to read, but essentially the fiscal findings are that um, there would be no... ..real reduction of any... A very small amount of uh, reduction in people who would go to private schools because they're so rich, they could just absorb the extra cost, no problem. That's what they've done for the last 20 years. Um, and it's very unlikely that if they did move to the state school system that the state school system would be burdened too much by their numbers uh, as it's uh, generally uh, in a demographic uh, reduction phase. So... Uh, there's no disadvantages, very few disadvantages to placing extra tax on private schools, and I think some of those lessons could be well looked at here in Australia. Anyway, back to you, Jean.
0: Well, many thanks to Jeff, and as you can see uh, here on The Dogs, we like to keep everybody informed, not just about what's going on in Australia but also what's going on overseas. But uh, we're going to go into the middle of Australia now. The Guardian website had a very interesting article, about the parents who choose public education and the parents who don't. And here is a parent who's chosen public education and what she has to say. This is part of our good news segment.
3: When we were kind of, you know, looking into the high school system, it felt like the public school offered this really kind of innovative teaching approach um, and I, you know, now having been in it for a little while, you can see that because they have to cater to, so to everyone, it means that they've got all these fantastic kind of learning styles that they deliver to. Does the private school have resources that I wish my child had access to? Um, no, not at all. Not at all. I, I mean, those bells and whistles are not part of a really grounded education. They are packaging and they don't deliver the kind of learning that we really, you know, yeah, that young people need. I know that the teachers are working extremely hard um, and that they're probably going well above and beyond um, the resources that they're given um, and that, you know, talks to their kind of passion and commitment. I don't know whether we've just become so kind of dazzled by the packaging of private education, but it's almost like we are so outcome-orientated that we've forgotten about the process. And I really, really, to me, the public education system does both of those really well, that it delivers on process and just the full breadth of learning that young people have to do. Um, It doesn't limit their opportunities by any means that we can see, um, seeing peers who are coming out the other end. You know, when you think back to your own high school, it's, you know, it's the teachers that really made the difference. And so... I'm so grateful that our public system does attract those teachers um, and I really just hope that they're given the resources to retain them because it is, they are, you know, they are the, they are what's holding together that whole system. There are influences in every school that you probably don't, if you could choose, you probably wouldn't want your young person to be adjacent to, but Um, I think we just have to have a bit more faith in our education system and a bit more trust in our community and just believe in ourselves as carers and parents and our young people that, you know, that's kind of what high school is for.
0: And now it's to our really happy segment, The Great State School.
5: Every week on The Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school.
1: State schools are great. Schools. School of the week, state
5: school. School are great of the school. week, great state schools. State, state schools, schools, school are great of the schools. week, school for the week here on the Dogs Program.
1: And this week's great state school of the week is Rockbank Primary School. So, here's a principal's welcome from the school's website. So, welcome to Rockbank Primary School. It's my privilege to be the principal of such a wonderful school. Rockbank Primary is an excellent school which aims to achieve the best possible outcomes in student learning. Our school provides a learning environment where children can have fun, progress in their learning, and develop their creativity and curiosity. We offer a school setting where children feel cared for and valued. Rockbank Primary has a rich history dating back to 1868, and it is an honour to be able to be a part of Rockbank Primary School's history and help shape its future. Rockbank continues to be a progressive and developing area with new estates currently being established around our school. This will mean continued growth for Rockbank Primary School in the future. Our teaching and learning is based on the Victorian curriculum, They pride themselves in being able to meet students at their points of need, ensuring every student receives the best possible education academically, socially and emotionally. At Rockbank Primary, we focus on the whole child. All students at Rockbank Primary have individual learning plans. Students Learning is supported by intervention programs that support students working below and above Victorian curriculum levels. Our technology infrastructure is constantly being updated with TVs in all the classrooms and learning spaces. Students have access to both laptops or tablets and access to multimedia equipment such as videos and cameras when required. Rockbank Primary offers a variety of specialist classes including Auslan Language, Visual Arts, Music, and Phys Ed. We pride ourselves on the care we provide for families. We have a strong wellbeing team, which includes a chaplain and together with all staff, we monitor the welfare, health and wellbeing of our students. Parents and families are encouraged to be involved in our school through the various parent forums, such as the school council. We also have many opportunities throughout the year where parents can join in with their children on special days, such as sports or other activities. Our values are... We are respectful. We are learners. We value togetherness. We are safe. And the values play an important part in our school culture, and we ensure that they're taught and upheld in the school community. Now, here's some facts and figures from the ACARA My School website. The school has 313 pupils, and the Ixio value is 1,018, which is just above the average of 1,000. The students are broadly representative of the community. It's a hard-working immigrant community. 14% of students have parents from the upper 25% in income. 27% are in the second highest quartile. 32% of students come from the third quartile. And 27% of students are from the poorest quartile in the community. 71% of pupils speak a language other than English at home and 1% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school with a newly, in a newly established suburb with dedicated principal and teachers. It costs the taxpayer around $15,000 to educate a student at this school. The school receives only $708,000 from the federal government and 2.7 million from the state government. 68,000 comes from fees and 37,000 from Private fundraising, but the capital grants in the last three years have been only eight hundred and twenty-five thousand. All of this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results of these students are comparable with all similar other schools. So, congratulations to Rockbank Primary. You are our great State School of the Week.
0: Well, uh, our time has gone, and uh, we hope that you've enjoyed our program this afternoon and that you'll be back with us next week. But if you want to find out more about us and uh, read up on our website, uh, our press release 989, uh, you might even find some footnotes there. Uh, You go to www.adogs.info. But from Dale and Andy and Sol, Jeff and Maddie and me, it's bye for now.
7: I'm standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I did dead Says Joe, but I dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize it's there you find your